many children in this congregation. And so we have a grave and a great responsibility before us, and that is to preserve a holy seat in the earth by limiting their marriages to those in the Lord. Amen. And taking all the measures necessary to accomplish that, both as a church and as parents. Amen. May the Lord bless us in that endeavor. Let us pray. Holy Father, for the sake of thy great name and the name of thy blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you will bless this conclusion to our study of marrying only in the Lord, that by this preaching and by this hearing, we might all be convinced and convicted and provoked on the importance of this great matter for the sake of your honor and glory in the earth, for the sake of our children, and for our peace. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us now. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7.39 said, Only in the Lord. What does it mean to be in the Lord? I covered it briefly this morning, that it must be a practical relationship with the kingdom of Jesus Christ and serving Him obediently, which is what it is. Right. It's a prepositional phrase used several times in the New Testament, teaching that usually it's applied to ministers. Paul referred to a number of ministers as being in the Lord, Timothy, and others in Romans 16, Phoebe, a sister in the Lord. What that meant was in the kingdom and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it says marry only in the Lord, it means to marry only those who are in the kingdom and service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are under his lordship, who are obeying him, who are seeking him and serving him, is what it means to be in the Lord. Now, I made a statement this morning quickly, and sometimes later I think that some may not remember. I said that even tearing the power cord off a jigsaw could lose you your place in the church and leave you a heathen man and a publican. I have used that example for around 15 years. And because of that, I presume on people's memories. But what I meant was that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we have a very brief description of how church judgment is to take place in small matters of dispute between members. And the small matter of dispute that I've always used as the example is one member borrowing a jigsaw, and while it's in his possession, the children tear the power cord off, or somehow the power cord is torn off the jigsaw, and he returns it without a power cord. Well, there's a process for judging in a matter like that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. And if that matter were to reach the church, and the church were to say, you owe brother so-and-so a new jigsaw, and the guilty party would not do so, then the church is to exclude him from their communion and treat him as a heathen man and a publican. So my point was, in defining this in the Lord, if we're to stick with the Word of God and make all the Word of God fit together, it could go that far. The communion is the minimum. And as wise parents, we'll look beyond the communion to those in our congregation that have a great zeal for the Lord, in addition to just the bare requirement of a church membership here. 
It's our duty to keep our membership pure from public sins, but we want spouses for our children beyond meeting the bare minimum. Amen. Don't we? Amen. Now, we can only expect that if our children are beyond the bare minimum. Absolutely. May the Lord help all of us. Amen. Heretics and unbelievers are to be avoided and rejected. Him that is a heretic... Reject after the first and second admonition, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Does that sound like someone you should marry? Second John, verses 10 and 11 would say, Not even to let them into your house, nor bid them Godspeed. Does that sound like someone you should marry? Someone will say, oh, oh, let me put it this way. This is a tongue twister for you. Is a believer a believer because he says he's a believer? No. James 2.19 tells us that the devils also believe and tremble. That is not evidence. That is nothing. Everyone almost says they're believers because they don't know what they're, you're talking about. They're so vague today, they can say, yes, I'm a believer, and there's no substance to it, and there's no actions to it. And the Bible actually tells us, thou doest well. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. James 2.19 Now why is it so important? First of all, God commands it. Marry only in the Lord. So that makes it very important by itself. I shouldn't hardly have to raise any more reasons. Because we say that we esteem every precept of God concerning all things to be right, and we hate every false way. Therefore, on this matter, we esteem the law, the precept, that we should marry only in the Lord, and we hate any objections, questions, or contrary thinking. But let's go beyond that, because the Lord's merciful to us. Do you remember this morning from Ezra chapter 9, verse 2, that they had a mingling of the holy seed? Remember those words? I want you to remember those words. The holy seed have mingled themselves with the peoples of the lands. And then in Malachi chapter 2, verses 11 and 15, we're told again about raising a godly seed to the Lord. This earth has six billion people on it, but there's only a few, in comparison, a few that truly fear the Lord. Now, we believe that God has reserved to himself more that have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal and that believe him, but we don't know of them. And the more you read and the more you meet and the more you question people, the more you realize there's only a few. We want to preserve that few Amen. for the glory of God. Amen. That's the first reason after God's commandment is to maintain this holy seed in the earth. If we marry unbelieving or weak and carnal Christians for our children, they are going to take our children away from God. They will end up living the lives, lives of hypocrites or weak and carnal Christians. And that is not what we want. No. That is not what the Lord wants. Brethren, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 5. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. This is a verse that's been a blessing to me in the last couple of months. It's very short, and you'll look at it again and you'll say, "Why? how can you get a blessing out of that verse? Well, it's the choice of words by the Apostle. Through the Spirit. From God. 1 Corinthians 9.5, the Apostle Paul, defending himself to the Corinthians, said, Have we not power to lead about a sister? 
Now, does that mean that the Corinthians had blind female church members and that he wanted to lead them about? This is the Holy Spirit's description of a New Testament marriage. And I like the words because they're God's words. Have we not power to lead about a sister? What is marriage in the New Testament? Leading about a sister. That's part of the godly seed. You're marrying your sister in the Lord. Isn't that how we say it? She's my sister in the Lord. He's my brother in the Lord. You're marrying in the Lord. It's either a brother or a sister. And the brother, because he's the man, gets to lead about a sister in the Lord. It makes marriage so spiritual in this verse right here in the sense that we're marrying spiritually minded, spiritually filled children of God who are servants of Jesus Christ. Lead about a sister. 1 Corinthians 9, 5. And doesn't that fit with 1 Peter 3, 7 where we're told that a husband is to dwell with knowledge with his, dwell with his wife according to knowledge, giving honor unto the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life. Together, a husband and a wife, many of you sitting together tonight, are heirs together of eternal life. That's leading about a sister. We are unusual in this world. We're not like Hollywood. We're not like those out there in the rest of the rooms of this meeting place. We're not like those out there in the cars running up and down 85. We're the servants that were the children of God in this world, and we are a very, very small remnant and minority. And the way we preserve that very small remnant is to marry a sister and a brother. Amen. You say that sounds like inbreeding. You get the points very well. Good class. Yes, inbreeding. The children of God begetting the children of God that are faithful, loyal, holy, righteous. That is the purpose. That's the second reason. We are in a war, brethren, like there was before the flood. The sons of God versus the daughters of men. We're in a war, and it's our duty to win that war by helping, limiting, our children to marrying in the Lord. Now that's for a godly seed for the Lord himself. There's another reason. And that's to avoid the sour marriages that result when you don't have the fear of the Lord in both parties. And what a mess it creates. If there is a problem in a marriage, it's because one or both parties does not fear the Lord. You say you simplify things too much. Oh, no, I don't. God made them simple. And the minute you make them more complicated, you're leaving the simplicity of the gospel. If there's a problem in a marriage, one or both parties is not fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord means to depart from evil and keeping all of his commandments. The whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. If two people are doing that, they will have a great marriage. Any point less than a great marriage is because one or both parties is not doing that. So if we start a marriage off by marrying someone who doesn't fear the Lord, then we're asking for trouble. So we start by giving them the best start possible, and that is both parties fearing the Lord. Amos would say, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And brethren, you know what dating is for? What you do or you don't like on your pizza isn't, who cares if you're agreed on that? That isn't going to help you one bit. 
Do you know what compatibility that we need is? The mutual fear of the Lord. Amen. How can two walk together except they be agreed on spiritual things Amen. like there's a God in heaven and He has a Son, Jesus Christ, and He's given us a Bible that tells us how we ought to live. Amen. And they date for compatibility the most ridiculous things that won't see you through one minute of marriage. That's right. Not one minute. Amen. Marriage is a intimate, personal, life-altering, permanent, and costly relationship. It's 50 years long. I always call it the 50-year decision. When you marry someone, it's for 50 years, and you do not know what it's like until you're married. All of you single people sitting there, you have no clue what marriage is about. All you have had are these flitting little childish feelings in your bosom that have nothing to do with marriage. They will never get you anywhere. I don't care how how holy you are. I don't care how wise you are. I don't care how sober you are. You know nothing about marriage until you're in it. Amen. And when you look at your parents and, and hear them, trust them. Amen. Those little feelings in your bosom go away. And then it comes down to real love. That's keeping the Lord's commandments and choosing to love your spouse. Amen. I'm not trying to run children down. But I'm trying to put them where they belong. Our world wants to wants you to believe that you're very wise and that the future of our world depends upon you. The future of our world depends upon us training you properly Amen. and limiting who you marry. Right. At least the Lord's world. Brethren, Proverbs chapter 12 tells me that a woman can either be a crown to her husband or he can be pain in her bones. Proverbs 30 said that there are four things the earth cannot stand, and I preached it last Sunday evening, and one of them is an odious woman when she is married. You know what Solomon said about marriage? I find more bitter than death the woman, the wisest man that ever lived. And I'm sure there's young people in here Young men and young women who are thinking, but I know better than that. The wisest man that ever lived was taken down a primrose path by women until he was offering children in sacrifice to Molech. I find more bitter than death the woman. We want to avoid problem marriages. If you marry wisely, you can expect peace, performance, leverage, a holy home, with the Lord's blessing. Right. What does it mean to marry wisely? To marry in the Lord and not to compromise that little prepositional phrase. Brethren, how are differences solved in a marriage? Differences are going to come up. Problems are going to come up. Questions are going to come up in a marriage. How are they solved? What's the best way to solve them? I, I believe what the Bible says. That's correct. I believe that God created love, sex, and marriage. I believe that by faith because that's what the Bible tells me. Therefore, I trust the Creator's manual. If I bought a sophisticated piece of yard equipment to cut my grass, to aerate my lawn, would I go read the manual for the dishwasher to know how to operate it? If you go anywhere else but here, you are doing something very similar to that. Because you're reading the hallucinations of men who have depraved hearts. 
This Bible will tell a husband how to be a great husband and a wife how to be a great wife. And like I said, if there's a problem in a marriage, one or both are not doing it. God created this thing called marriage, and so we trust his manual. And scripture is sufficient, and scripture is relevant. I don't care when it was written. The infinite God with infinite wisdom wrote this book for the 21st century. Because the same principles and laws and specifics that are in the Bible will work today. Two Christians should be able to solve any marriage problem easily by the Bible. You know what? Most marriage problems are just selfish pride. What's the best cure for that poison? Selfish pride. Where is someone going to be taken down in their selfish pride? How does a wife get leverage? How does a husband get leverage? Now, if you ask the flesh, the wife gets leverage by maybe yelling, maybe defrauding her husband of sex, maybe calling DSS, maybe pouting, maybe giving him the cold shoulder for a couple of days, maybe being sarcastic, maybe slandering him to friends. Oh, yes, I just listed them all. I got most of them. That's what women do in the flesh to try to get leverage on their husbands. And all those things are wrong. What does a husband do to get leverage on his wife? He uses force. He gets angry. He yells. He uses sarcasm. He gives her the silent treatment for a while. Or he denies her money. I'll get back at her. She won't have any spending money for a while. And so we have this vicious cycle that results through selfish pride of both parties trying to get leverage, and it never works. The things I just mentioned are ridiculous. All they're going to do is aggravate the situation. But a, but a spouse needs leverage in a marriage, and I mean it for both parties. And there is leverage. But there's only leverage if it's two people that fear God that married. And if two people that feared God married, then they have the Word of God as their leverage. And it's great leverage. And if a man fears God, do you know a woman in a humble way can bring the Word of God up to her husband and she has the biggest club that's ever been formed over her husband? My wife has a bigger one because she gets to say, didn't you preach this? Have I ever heard that? is the Pope a Catholic. I don't want to hear it very often. And I don't have an answer except to repent and humble myself. A wife should be able to say, Husband, there's only one way to say this, ladies, and you should know that without me even going into it. Husband, the Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I don't think the family should be watching this. If the man fears God, and I don't mean a professor, a professor with something like that will take that as rebellion from his wife and crush you one way or another in the list of things I just said. But if he's a true believer and he fears God, the words the Bible says, and then quoting a scripture are the biggest club, and I, I'm, you know how I'm using club, right. the biggest club you can imagine. It will humble that man, and 
while he's got a swallow to be corrected by his wife, which is a hard thing to do. But if he fears God, you know what? He'll do it. And you will not be watching that thing in your home that's bothered your conscience. You say it doesn't work that easily. Then someone doesn't fear the Lord in your home. A husband should be able to say to his wife, Dear, the Bible says to reverence your husband. And this particular way that you've been treating me is not reverencing me. To a woman that fears the Lord, you shouldn't have to say any more. Right. She'll hear Ephesians 5.33, and with the Spirit of God in her heart, she will be humbled, and she will change whatever she's doing that isn't reverencing her husband. In both cases, a believing spouse will be submissive, should be, Submissive, cooperative, and converted. Amen. If it doesn't work, then it's because the party doesn't fear the Lord enough. But brethren, we're talking about starting marriages right now. I'm not preaching on marriage tonight. I'm preaching about starting marriages. So therefore, we go after a person that really fears the Lord, Amen. truly fears the Lord, deeply fears the Lord, because that person in a marriage, whether it's a man or a woman, when they hear the words, the Bible says, from a spouse, which is that intimate relationship that can breed contempt. But when you use the words the Bible says, that should bring conversion and resolution to whatever problem you had. But to get that, we both have to fear the Lord. And what we're talking about right now is the third reason for why we choose very carefully in whom our children marry, and that's not to have sour marriages, but to have wonderful marriages, because both parties fear the Lord. Yep. When both parties fear the Lord, both parents and in-laws can bring the Word of God to bear in a situation, and it's not, I can't stand your parents, or I can't stand my in-laws, or anything like that, because who can say anything against this when you fear the Lord? Then you bring your little wife or you bring your husband to church and there's a pastor who preaches this word and who preaches it boldly and plainly. And you sit there and trust the Lord that the right things will be said. And if he has a heart that fears the Lord, he will take that and go home and be a better husband. She will take that and go home and be a better wife. Amen. The fear of the Lord makes for better marriages. Amen. My question was, What's the best way to solve marriage problems, differences, and questions? Two people that fear the Lord, resolving everything by what the Bible says. Amen. How can two people have a great marriage? Let's not talk one that just avoids the problems, but is fulfilling, loving, secure, peaceful, friendly, and fruitful. Same answer. Amen. God created love, sex, and marriage. Therefore, we ought to use his manual. Two people led by the Spirit of God, submissive totally to all of Scripture, will obtain. Amen. We haven't obtained. Someone will say to me, you may be saying in your heart right now, we haven't obtained. There is a reason. One or both do not truly fear the Lord and are being totally submissive to everything Scripture says. That's why we're all moving toward perfection. That's why that, that's the purpose of the ministry. The purpose of the New Testament church is to move toward perfection. If two people simply obeyed the Bible toward each other, they would have a great marriage. Amen. 
Simple. Don't need books. Don't need a shelf of books this wide. Don't need to go to courses and don't need to pay for counselors. If you just obeyed the Bible and it's simple little statements because they're strong, they're weighty, and they're broad. Can we isolate a few basic requirements that make a marriage, that give a marriage great potential for success? I believe there's four. The fear of the Lord on both parties. Four points that can lead to a great marriage. Both parties fear the Lord. Number two, they have open, knowledgeable, realistic, supportive, encouraging parents. That's four. We got four parents that are concerned about these two. Now, that's this is ultimate. Four concerned, open, realistic, knowledgeable, participating, encouraging, supportive parents. Building those two up to have a great marriage. Three, you go to church every Sunday where there's a pastor that preaches the whole counsel of God. And when it's time to preach on marriage, he doesn't pull punches and just read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28 in some pious little voice and think that he's done his job. But he takes those passages along with other places in the Bible and brings them to bear on your life. And then those two people have godly brethren who care about them and will go out of their way to encourage them or rebuke them if they see problems or instruct them when they need help. All those things are in the Bible. Amen. Two people that fear the Lord, parents who are supportive and helpful, a pastor who preaches the truth, and friends who will participate and give advice instead of just having dinner or getting together for superficial reasons. You have those four things in place, and two people can have a great marriage. Yep. Brethren, it's crucial for us. We are living in the prophesied perilous times of the last days. How are we going to do it? Turn to Proverbs chapter 31. We're answering three questions today about 1 Corinthians seven thirty-nine. What? What is it? Why? We just covered that. Why? There's reasons. Because God told us to. Because we want to leave a godly seed. Because we want to avoid problems in our children's marriages. And we want them to have great marriages. And now we ask, answer the question, how are we going to go about doing it? As parents, Proverbs chapter 30, 1 and verse 30. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Amen. The fear of the Lord has to absolutely be kept preeminent in our qualifying of guys or girls for marriage. The fear of the Lord. Always go back to the fear of the Lord. It doesn't matter. Any, nothing else matters relative to this point. Anything you can think of. But he's nice. Nice doesn't count. Do you know how nice Jack the Ripper was during the daytime? Anybody know who Jack the Ripper was during the daytime? The court physician in London, England. Pretty nice guy. Nice doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. All deceivers are nice. We want the fear of the Lord. Now let's look at this text. Favor is deceitful. We often run over that and jump to beauty, but favor 
is deceitful. Right. What are favors? Anything you do to impress or win someone else. Yep. It's dating. Yep. Amen. Dating. Dating is picking a future segment of time of short duration where you mutually agree on something that you both like and you mutually agree that you will impress and deceive each other for this specified period of time and by that you will find out whether you should marry or not. Because favor is deceitful. Oh, don't try to tell me I, I'm not telling you the truth. What do you guys do for dates? They borrow cars, they borrow money, they borrow clothes, and on the way out the door they have older brothers and fathers and mothers saying, don't forget to open the car door for her, don't forget to, to pull her chair out when she sits down in the restaurant, and the girl's over there borrowing a dress, borrowing this, and the mother's saying, don't forget to say thank you when he opens the car door for you, and all this stuff that are, it's not true! You're lying to each other, and you did it by appointment. Seriously. And do you know what? You do four of those, who wouldn't fall in love with the other person? Man, they're treating me well. Well, they got a whole crew at home telling them exactly what to do to impress you. And America thinks that that's how it gets done. And it does get done. They marry, and in one week they go... They're calling home to their girlfriends. They're calling home to their mom. You wouldn't believe this guy. She's nothing what I thought I was marrying. You know why? The car door isn't getting opened anymore. No more thank yous are being said. Because the lying has ended. The real people have shown up for the marriage. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? Amen. I know the whole world would call me a caveman but I'm, tr I'm trying to save your lives and I'm trying to save the lives of my own family by the Word of God. It's all a joke. Right, and you know where I get it all? Most of it? Right there. Favor is deceitful. That's doing anything to win or impress another person so as to present something different than you truly are. Oh. You got it right, brother. Remember, it said there's four things the earth can't stand. It's an odious woman when she's married. What is she like on dates? Perfect. Favors, baby. Yep. She is sweet. Yep. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. What's beauty going to accomplish? It's empty and nothing. That's what the word vain means. Empty and nothing. What will it accomplish? And yet God made, God made men to be stimulated first by their sight. So when a man sees a good-looking woman in one nanosecond, he doesn't have to think about it. There's no thought process involved. It's one nanosecond of time he wants. That's the way, listen, if God hadn't made the men that way, there would still be two people on this planet, Adam and Eve, and they'd be walking through the Garden of Eden holding hands, and you would hear the words of Eve, it's so fun being friends. God gave men a drive and they will get it satisfied. And they're attracted visually because that's at a distance. 
You know, you got a girl over here and a guy over here. Well, the guy can look all the way over there. The girl doesn't know if this guy is kind, gracious, virtuous or not, but he can see. And do you know what happens to this distance? Because of sight. But do you know what the Bible tells us about that? Beauty is vain. How's it vain? It's going to decay. And as it begins to decay, or it does decay, what will keep the marriage together? Well, if you're rich enough, famous enough, and with no scruples, morals, or fear of the Lord, you just keep marrying a younger woman. But that we're, we're talking about keeping marriages together for a godly seed. It blinds to character. Because when a guy's in the presence of a beautiful woman like that, all he can do is see and feel her incredible presence. And the character decisions that he ought to be making go out the window. Beauty is vain. It entices and steals a man. It's of little value. What is it going to do for you? The real character of taking your children and training your children and submitting to you and obeying you and reverencing you as a wife and attending church with you. Her beauty isn't going to get any of that done. It's going to be her character. This is the word of the Lord. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised, and I praise every woman in here that fears the Lord and is a good wife. If you're carnally minded, you're going to choose a husband or a wife carnally. If you're spiritually minded, you're going to choose spiritually, and the Lord's going to bless you. We need to demand Faithful, holy, zealous, sanctified, spirit-led, truth-seeking, Christ-loving, sin-hating, Bible-exalting, world-denying, counting the cost, paying the price, praying, and extreme spouses for our children. And the way we do it is we ignore words like Baptist, Christian, Bible, moral, good, and nice. What if your daughter comes home and says that she has found a Bible Baptist Christian who's very moral and he's good and nice. You haven't proved a thing about him yet. Not a thing. Many claim Christian. I told you this morning that two billion of the world's six billion claim Christian. It's proof of nothing. We need to go way beyond that. We need perfect spouses that fear God totally and bear the Spirit's fruit and prioritize their lives by the Word of God. He's a professing Christian. So was Judas Iscariot, a rich young man, and Demas. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Do you want to see the look in a woman's eyes when she says that about her husband? Demas was a professing Christian. So was Judas. And so was a rich young ruler. But you know what? Jesus Christ put a test to that rich young ruler. Why don't you take what you've got and sell it and give it to the poor? And the man was grieved and he went away sorrowing because he wasn't going to pay a price like that to follow Jesus Christ. But he was a professing Christian. Well, Daddy, his zeal is just a little cool now. Well, our Lord has an opinion of your prospect, daughter. He would spew him out of his mouth. Isn't that? 
He just doesn't have much zeal right now, Daddy. What would the Lord say about someone without any zeal? You say, you're, you're drawing this so tight. Yes, I'm drawing it right down to a true believer and child of God walking in the Spirit. Amen. That's what I'm drawing it down to. No farther. Amen. But Daddy, he believes in God. So do the devils, Amen. and they tremble. But Daddy, he says he knows God. But daughter, I think he's a liar. Because I read in 1 John 2, 4, that he that saith he know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. Amen. And the truth is not in him. But Daddy, he was saved 10 years ago. Great. At a Billy Graham crusade or a youth party? What does that prove? Where's that in the Bible? Saved 10 years ago. Listen, I hope you were saved yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. I hope that you're continually being saved, and I hope that you've got so much hope you're saying my salvation is nearer than when I believed. Right. We're, we're in a process of salvation. Don't you find a person that's still counting on a decision that he wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible 10 years ago? You've got a problem. Oh, here's a good one. But Daddy, he'll change. I just know he'll change. Are you kidding me? If a guy won't change for you before he gets your hand in marriage, I'll tell you one thing that you can bet on. He's never going to change later. The only motive he's got is before he gets his hands on you. And if he won't change then, he's not going to change later. But Daddy... Did you hear his prayer? I didn't, darling. I was reading Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 11. Daddy, what does that say? Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. But Daddy, he's the nicest guy I know. I'm sorry, I've used it already. So was Jack the Ripper during the day. Doesn't mean anything. Now, brethren, I've a I've a, I'm going to have an outline on the back table tonight when, I'm, when we're through with our whole service. And it's got a list of 32 different Bible criteria for defining what a true Christian is. And they're all basic things that you all know. But in case you forget when the little daughter comes and says he's so nice, or the son comes and says she's so sweet, then we've got a list of things to look at to remind us of what a true Christian has in his life. And I hope that it's helpful to you. Amen. I want to go back to one of those, though. But, Daddy, he'll change. I just know he'll change. I think I can change him, Daddy. Should we ordain bishops this way? Should we promote staff on the job that way, Charlie? Should we promote staff that uh, has a serious list of problems in the hope that once we promote them, they'll be better? Do you hire painters for your house that way? He's botched the last four houses and he's only painted four, but you think he's going to change on your house. That Don't give me this stuff and don't give your parents that stuff and parents, don't accept that. Amen. If he won't change before, he's not going to change afterwards. This is tempting God. It is a sin. Amen. For you to marry foolishly, and expect God to deliver you from your foolish decision is to tempt the Lord. 
And you don't have a promise like Jesus Christ had when he was on the pinnacle of the temple. He was on the pinnacle of the temple, and the devil opened to him the word of God and said, look what it says if you're the son of God. It says if you cast yourself down, that his angels will bear you up, and you will not dash your foot against a stone. Did it? Does it say that in the Bible? In the King James Bible? Did Satan quote the King James Bible? Of course he did. Satan knows it's the word of God. It's the one he wants to get rid of. He quoted it correctly. Jesus had a verse. For you to marry foolishly, you don't have a verse. Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God to the devil. You're certainly tempting him, or we are, if we let our children marry someone with potential. I love that. But daddy, he's got so much potential. Well, honey, just show it to me. Just show it to me. I'm easy to please. I'll read Proverbs 20 and verse 11 again. Even a child is known by his doings. Let's not talk about potential. Let's look at deeds. We don't marry hope or potential. Those are deceiving words that hide disaster. Learn the rule of ten. Do you know what the rule of ten is? The rule of ten is this. Faults that you can observe before marriage will be ten times worse after marriage. You say, where'd the rule of ten come from? I'll bet you couldn't find that in your concordance either. You're right. But I found this in my concordance. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 23, that there's something the world cannot stand, and it's an odious woman when she is married. What do those words mean? Brethren, I have tried to teach you to look for the sense of words. An odious woman, you cannot stand her when she is married. She was much better before. But you could have spotted an odious woman before, but she's trying to hide it. But do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that an odious woman is like the ointment of your right hand. It berayeth itself wherever you go. If you had your eyes open, instead of looking at her body, you would have seen that she was an odious woman, and she's going to be a whole lot worse later. This is a rule from the Word of God, from experience also, which only confirms the Word of God. If you can observe a fault in a person before marriage, it will be ten times worse afterwards. Because then there is no motive and the real person shows up. The real person never shows up on a date. If they can't pass the tests or meet the criteria before marriage, they won't after marriage. Brethren, we've got a word in our vocabulary now called compatibility. Couldn't find it in the Bible. Whatever it is, It doesn't make marriages work because everybody seems to be getting married based on compatibility, but they're all getting divorced. There is true compatibility. Mutual fear of the Lord. True compatibility is mutual fear of the Lord. If one is fearing the Lord a whole lot more than the other, they're not very compatible. They're not as compatible as they could be or should be. We want two people that really fear the Lord, truly fear the Lord, deeply fear the Lord, fear the Lord with deeds and actions proving it, consistently fear the Lord. Those two people will have a great marriage. Don't be deceived by compatibility. Mutual interests, because of dating, are no indicator at all of the stress that marriage produces, of living with a person 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for 50 years. Dating doesn't even get close. Dating is ridiculous. 
You say you're really on the warpath about dating. I want you to think. Amen. I want you to think. Similar tastes in food, recreation, music, and Polynesian baskets are vanity. That's not going to help you in a marriage. The only compatibility that's going to help is they both fear the Lord and love the Word of God. Amen. And then they've got a great basis for a great marriage. I hope you'll remember what I said about mar- dating. You pick a specific, very limited period of time in the future. You plan for it and prepare for it to impress and deceive the other party. They never meet the real party until the marriage occurs. And then they are disappointed. And for the rest of their life, they're wondering why they don't have the feelings and the wonderful times they had during the dating. If the fear of the Lord isn't there. Because the deceiving is gone. You're now married. The real person comes home. Use tests. There are some brothers in here who have had some experiences. I'm not going to embarrass them right now, but they've tested. If you're going to talk to a girl about, and you're looking at a girl for marriage or a woman for marriage, and you're, or you're a woman looking at a man for marriage, put some tests to them. Ask them to do some things. If there's a point of doctrine they don't believe, then bring it to bear and see if they'll change. That's a test. If you're a man, tell her you don't want to do what she thought of for the date. Or if you're on a date or whatever you're doing, you don't want to do it. You want to do something different. See how well she can handle a change of opinion by the man in charge. Let's move on to another aspect of this. Do they have to believe that we can't celebrate Christmas? No. If Christmas or anything else is made non-essential, what will keep you from compromising about Easter? If you compromise for Christmas and Easter, what will keep you from compromising about the mode of baptism as long as water is used? If you compromise on water baptism because water is used, what will keep you from compromising on the Lord's Supper as long as you used unleavened bread and wine, but you believe that Jesus Christ is actually present in the elements? If you compromise on those four things, may I be your Pope, and will you kiss my big toe? I don't listen. If somebody knows the Word of God better, come and show me a simpler, compromising way in which I can fear the Lord and honor Him and be able to compromise on some of these non-essential points, and I'll do it. I've got the biggest family of all. But I don't see the Word of God that way. I don't read it that way. And I want to keep every verse of this book. And Christmas to me is as important as anything I know because it's blasphemy against the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me on this. As parents, we're going to take heat for some of the things we believe. Hear me right now. I'm trying to prepare you parents. Our great differences with the religious world in this country are not our fault. It is their fault they have fallen away because we are happened to be living in the last days. 
Your children need to be told that God made choice that they would be born in the last days. Because we're in the last days, people have departed away from the truth, and what we believe is no longer understood, known, or appreciated and esteemed like it once was. If somebody says anything about Christmas, let me ask you about Christmas. 200 years ago when this country was founded, what did this country think of celebrating Christmas? It was a popish holiday and it was illegal. As a nation, what's happened? Have we changed? Have we tried to get strict? Have we tried to get so narrow-minded because we don't want, we want to be marrying cousins again? Or sisters? No, we want to hold to the word of God. They've departed from the faith. And you tell your children that. We haven't changed. What we now hold, men have laid down their lives for and used to be well understood by anyone that was called Christian except the whore of Rome. And she understood some of them. What about instruments? We don't have musical instruments. You say, I just can't invite anyone to come to church with me because there's a piano and an organ missing. They'll walk in and be looking for the piano and the organ and they'll think they're in the wrong place. Do you know that a couple of hundred years ago, no church had musical instruments in it? None. Have you ever read on that subject? They didn't have musical instruments. Those were inventions of the invitation system, which brings me to a third example. Our church never has an invitation. They don't think we care about souls. They don't think we care about Jesus Christ. Invitations were invented by an evangelist named Charles Finney about 150 years ago. There were not instruments in the churches of Jesus Christ for 1,800 years. And there still aren't in the churches of Jesus Christ that are being faithful. We haven't changed. They've changed. There are whole books written on that subject, but you haven't read them. Do you think they're offered in Bible doctrines class at Bob Jones University? That musical instruments and music wasn't in the, wasn't in New Testament churches in 1800? Are you kidding? It cut out their fine arts school. What about election? Anybody ever read section three of the Westminster Confession of Faith? That's the Presbyterian Confession of Faith. Chapter three on the decrees of God will blow you away. It is so powerfully written, so powerfully worded, and so true. In chapter 3, the decrees of God about election, predestination, and reprobation. (laughs) We haven't changed. We're still holding to the truth, but brethren, you were born the wrong time. So do you know who you have to complain against? It's not your parents. They are trying to have you in a church where the truth is taught. God chose that you would be born in the last days. Are we going to hold? God will bless us if we'll be faithful. I'm very serious about what I'm telling you. I'm very gripped by what I'm telling you since I am back in your pulpit. There is a warfare going on and we're in the last days of it. And the Lord is asking the question that's more true today than it ever was. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And, and I, as your pastor, and all I am is your servant, 
I want to be found faithful, and I want all of you to be found faithful. Amen. Amen, we haven't changed. What we now believe used to be esteemed. And Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans of England and America did not celebrate Christmas. They esteemed our position. What about regeneration occurring before faith? Many theologians have written that regeneration is an instantaneous act by the power of God. They may not have granted so many cases of unconverted elect, but some of them even granted some of those. There's Southern Baptist pastors who wrote systematic theologies in this state 200 years ago that claim that regeneration is an instantaneous act by the power of God, that conversion is a person coming to believe the gospel, and the two of them are separate events, and in many cases separated by an in, by a, by a a considerable a considerable period of time. Is that what we believe? Yes. They've changed. They have chosen to go to decisional regeneration to where if they can get a person up the aisle, which the apostles never did, no one ever did, that that person is saved. They can write a date in the flyleaf of the Bible and they can think they're going to heaven for the rest of their life. They've changed. We haven't. They're going down the tubes. They have another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. Do not let your children tell you that our differences are because we're trying to be narrow-minded and strict and extreme. We are trying to hold the Bible, and just a couple hundred years ago, most of Christianity in this country held to the same thing. Much of it. Not all those points in all groups, but some of those points in all groups. Are we really making it too difficult by being so exclusive? Are we making it impossible? Remember the five I mentioned this morning? And there's others in here. I was looking at a particular class of them where the husband was converted and he needed a wife and the Lord sent one. Sit down with those women and see how much they love Bible doctrine and truth. And I love all you women. It's you are so, you are such an encouragement to me to believe this, that God, that if we'll honor God's word, he'll honor us. Amen. Because those women love what we teach in this church. Amen. Do you trust God or not? Yes, right. He got you through conception and birth. You don't think he can handle marriage? Mm-hmm. He can handle it. Right. Do you think he's going to be more or less willing? To bless you if our criteria is the fear of the Lord. I think that's getting the Lord on our side. Is it worth it? 50 years of hell? Leaving a godly seed in the earth? I think it's worth it. We ought to marry in the Lord. There's nothing in this sermon for you tonight in the how to find. There are ways to find, and the great way, the first way, is to trust the Lord. I know five men that could get up and start giving testimonies right now. Some of them did some things. Some of them just waited in the Lord, and they came out of the clear blue sky in some cases. I want you to trust the Lord. The Bible says if you have a plan to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, that's exactly what you ought to do. 
if the Lord will. Right. If you've got a plan to try to find a spouse, then use your plan and commit it to the Lord. But remember to keep his criteria first. Right. I just want to, I want to re remind you, Solomon wrote and said, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Amen. If in your heart, and, I, and I'll be, I'll be glad to help anyone, if in your heart, you would like to try some way to, to find a person that fears the Lord that would be part of this congregation with you and, and create a godly seed in the earth. You devise that way in your heart and will trust the Lord to direct your steps. I know that a little Moabitess named Ruth came back to the nation of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she devised a way in her heart to support her mother-in-law, and that was to go out and glean fields. And the Lord directed her steps. And I know I've told the story before, but I'll continue to tell the story of Ruth because my God thought it was important enough that he has four chapters in here and she has a book with her name on it, though she was a Moabitess. Right. She is the great-grandmother of King David. Amen. She is the great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And she was a widow Moabitess in the nation of Israel. And she married a rich man, and she lived happily ever after. And if you don't believe that, read the last couple of verses of Ruth chapter 4. Don't ever get... Hey, what about Esther? Amen. What about Esther? She has a book named after her too, doesn't she? Amen. What was Esther? Give me a few facts about her as a child. Was she? Uh, did she lose her parents? Is that sad case for a girl to lose her parents? Is it sadder still when a foreign power comes and takes a little girl and drags her off to a foreign nation with a different religion and a different language? Is that harder still? Yep. Is that pretty tough lot? Who'd she marry? But we don't know that he was converted. I can't chase this rabbit very long, but if you'll read the book of Nehemiah, Amen. you will find Nehemiah the king's cupbearer coming up before king, and he's, he's sad. The king says, why are you sad? And he says... Jerusalem's waste. It needs to be rebuilt. The king said, or they need help in rebuilding Jerusalem. But it's got a little parenthetical element there right. for you. You run over it every time you read it. The queen sitting beside him. That's our queen. That's Esther. Amen. She beat all those women in a winner takes all beauty contest. You say she must have been beautiful. Well, she was probably pretty good looking too, but do you know what? It says that she found favor because the Lord blessed her. Yeah. Don't ever give up hope. Trust the providence of God. You delight yourself in the Lord. What's the promise? He will give you the desires of your heart. This morning I prayed for you and now I tell you. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children to do them. These are the revealed things. Right. If we'll do them, God knows the secret things. Do you know what he knows? He knows what's best for you. Amen. If you'll do these things, he'll do the other things. Right. Was that pretty good for Ruth? Amen. Was it pretty good for Esther? Amen. Was it pretty good for Mark? Amen. Thank you. I knew I'd get another one. <laughs> Brethren... Dating and interaction with the opposite sex for all of us better have marriage in mind every single time. If they're not qualified for marriage, they're not qualified to be around. Because if you want to play that game, which is like playing with matches in a gasoline refinery, then you're going to have emotions at risk 
that you will not be able to compete with. Dating those unqualified for marriage is ridiculous. I want to just, just mention this briefly. Arranged marriages, I hope that you'll think about them just to see the wisdom of God. Amen. What Abraham did for his son Isaac was so wise. I want to show you the very opposite of the coin that I've made fun of tonight. The coin called dating. Let's flip it all the way around and see arranged marriages where Abraham goes and gets a wife for Isaac and brings her home and the two of them have never met nor exchanged letters and they were not e-pals. But do you know what happens? They're married. The first time they... Have you read it? Yeah, she got off her camel. He said, it's nice to know you. Took her hand, led her into his mother's tent and consummated the marriage. But then do you know what happens when you're on that side of marriage and you don't know each other? Follow with me. The other side. You then have to win and seduce your spouse in the reality of married life. Right. Not in the three hours a week on a Saturday night right. in the in the unreal life of dating. You're 24 hours... And do you know what the Lord did to help you out? Somebody... What did the Lord do to help you out? Win and seduce that woman after... Took a, year off. a year off. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. A man that takes a new wife shall not be charged with business nor war to be taken away from home so that he can spend that time at home winning that woman within marriage, within the reality of marriage, which is what every woman wants. Because guess what? He's, he knows she's going to be homesick. And he's going to be trying to win her. She doesn't know a thing about him. He doesn't know much about her. And they're going to be winning each other within marriage. And that's the way the Lord did it. Right. It's not relevant, is it? I mean, the Bible is so outdated. Dating, courting, and arranged marriages are all a matter of liberty. I we're not going to require nor condemn them. But I hope that I've given enough warning about dating and I've encouraged you about arranged marriages, and every father can make the choice and the rest. I'm not going to fight you at all. I'll support you in every way as long as you're keeping the Word of God. Amen. Brethren, if we're going to seek and expect such exceptional spouses for our children, guess what? They better be exceptional. Right. Or we're asking, we're tempting God by asking Him for something that we don't deserve. This is the commandment of the Apostle Paul. Anyone not keeping this as a member of this church will be excluded. Right. Our youth should band together and be friends with everyone. In, in, all the youth should be friends for their mutual encouragement, their mutual prayer, and possibly their mutual attraction or arrangement. But all the young people should be praying for one another and encouraging one another. Amen. We cannot and should not and will not approve marriages to unbelievers or believers not living godly lives. The hurt of a disappointed child for a couple of weeks is nothing compared to 50 years of problems. Do you have the authority to do this? Amen. Come on. Can you say no to some little, to your little daughter when she comes home with someone who doesn't meet the criteria? Abraham didn't even ask Isaac. Right. He just went and did it. And Abraham was a great man, an example for us. Isaac told Jacob to go do the same thing. Are your children married already? Then your grandparents. If your grandparents, that just means that the pyramid's getting bigger at the base. 
so that you have more work to do with all those grandchildren as they become of marrying age. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to be at liberty to marry whom we will, only in the Lord. Amen.